want you to think back to the last time that you tried to use a machine that then did not work. Like the last time that I was trying to play some music for, for the twins, two-year-olds, and, and I'm, I'm hitting the button, and I'm just hearing this whirl in, in the CD player, but no music was being emitted from this device that was created to do one thing, to make music. And it wasn't playing music. It was broken. Or when I tried to make a smoothie for lunch, and then I'm putting all the ingredients in, in, in the blender, and then it won't spin. It, it, I, so I couldn't have my smoothie, and it was very disappointing. Or maybe the last time that you got into your car, which for me happens like almost exactly every July. Like it's like clockwork. Every 12 months, I, I'll get in my car, I'll turn the key, I hear click, 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 because the battery is dead. And so it's just, I'm sure you can relate when there's a machine that you're trying to use according to how it was designed, and then it just doesn't work. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, I'm kind of weird, but I get kind of sad. Like, I get this, this, oh, like this sad, like this machine that's supposed to do something that it's unable to. It, it can't accomplish its, its purpose for why it was even created in the first place. And maybe I think too much about everything. My wife says that I do, but... For better or worse, I, when, I, when I think of machines that don't accomplish what they're supposed to do because they're broken, I, I think, well, I'm no different. And humanity as a whole is no different. That we're broken. And we don't work right. We don't work according to our original design. And due to the curse of sin and death that's on this world, Every one of us failed to accomplish what we were designed to do. The book of Ecclesiastes makes this truth so clear that we are a broken people living in a broken world. And in this brokenness, we can look to all kinds of things under the sun that are created. We can look to different people or our pursuits or pleasures or possessions to give us a sense of, of hope and, and meaning and, and purpose and joy. But as King Solomon wrote, inspired by God's Spirit, all of those attempts are vanity. All is vanity. And so nothing under the sun will ultimately satisfy your soul. And the reason is that you and I were created for far more. We're created for a grander purpose. And so you and I exist to glorify God by knowing him and by enjoying him forever. And so today we conclude our series in Ecclesiastes by looking at the last few verses. We have been considering now for the last few months on how everything is meaningless without Jesus. So let's see how this book concludes. Ecclesiastes 12, reading verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
of making many books, there is no end, and much study is the weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me read verse 13 again because it is foundation for the whole book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The conclusion of this book makes sense of the whole book of Ecclesiastes because you cannot fully understand the book unless you understand this last few verses. It is significant not to understand just this book, but to make sense of our whole lives living under the sun in this broken, corrupted world. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, this world at times, if not quite often, is filled with pain and with disappointment with frustration, with sadness. And yet, God's word is saying that in the middle of all of that frustration, our purpose remains. So let me give you the primary truth. This is the main idea from our text for today. God designed you for an eternal purpose. You have to know and believe this. This has to be the foundation that you build your life upon is that God designed you for an eternal purpose. You're not an accident. Your life has eternal value and meaning and purpose, and God defines what your purpose is. We can try to find our purpose under the sun according to our own ideas, and we will fail and come up empty. And our naturalistic, Darwinistic friends, atheist friends, would say, that you don't have a purpose because there is no designer. It's all just time plus chance. And yet God's word says that's a lie. You do have a purpose, and God defines it. You can't define your own purpose. God made you. Therefore, God defines your purpose, and you are designed for an eternal one. And this text answers three specific questions about our purpose. And this is life-changing and this is soul satisfying. So question number one that this text reveals about purpose. First, it asks the question, well, what is God's purpose for us? So this is the meaning of life, kind of the big question. So what is God's purpose for us? That's the first question in this text. Verse 13, it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is picturing a judge who is sitting on his bench in a courtroom, and he's hearing all the arguments, and he's evaluating all the evidence that has been presented, all the competing views that says, no, your purpose is this, no, your purpose is that. And so the world that's trying to give competing answers for, and different philosophies of what our purpose is, God is the judge, he gives a final verdict, he makes a final conclusion, he has a final word. God is the creator and the sovereign and the judge, and he has the last word, and his last word is good. And final analysis, God's word, he says, this is, this is the verdict. Fear God and keep his 
commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In our broken lives, we still retain a God-saturated purpose. Our eternal purpose is described here as the whole duty of man. God is our purpose. So to answer the question, what is God's purpose for us? Fear God. This is what the word is saying, verse 13. Fear God. That is the whole duty of man. Now, when you read the words fear God, the Bible does not mean the type of fear that you see in like a horror movie. So fear God does not mean be afraid, run and hide, be terrified of God because he's like a zombie and he's going to come get you if you're not paying attention. God's not a monster who's out to seek to destroy you and take away everything good that's in your life. That's not what this fear in the Bible means. So God is not like that abusive man where his wife and children have to walk on eggshells and hope to not upset him or they're going to experience his wrath. Living in fear. That's not what fear God means. In the Bible, when you read fear God, it means an attitude of submission to him. A respect for him. It means to depend on him. Ultimately, this word fear, it means to worship him. So to fear God embodies all that is your faith and your hope in God. It also includes a genuine love, affections for him, desiring him. And so fear and faith can be used almost interchangeably when you're reading in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, both written by the same person, Solomon. So to fear God is to have faith in him. To have faith in him is to fear him. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, this is important. The sequence here matters. Fear first, obedience follows. Don't get those backwards. Because if you get them backwards, if you think obedience first and then fear follows, then what you have is empty religion and legalism where you have to obey to earn God's favor. You have to slavishly in fear obey and do and do and be religious so that you can then earn God's approval and love and your salvation. That's just empty religion. That's just do, do, do. But the gospel is it's done. Jesus already accomplished it on the cross. And so he says, fear God and obey his commandments. So first, you recognize your sin. First, you realize that you are a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross for you. And you then see the glory of God that he is displaying through his mercy that we don't deserve, but he generously gives, and so we recognize that, and then we respond to this overwhelming love and grace of God by trusting in Him. And so trust comes first. We see His beauty, His glory. We respond with repenting and trusting. Trust comes first. So that's fear. You fear God. Second, obedience follows. 
Obedience is the result. We keep his commandments. You fear God, and then you keep his commandments. Again, you can't get those backwards. See, we grow in our obedience because of our love for God. We grow in our obedience and our holiness because we already have God's presence. We already are accepted and loved by him. And then this fuels a desire. Our hearts are changed, and we want to obey. We want him. So God's spirit does this. It's supernatural. It's called the new birth, being born again, being regenerated, true conversion. All this is describing someone that is not just checking religious boxes because it's a cultural thing to do to be a Christian. No, this is someone that has placed their whole life is cast upon the mercy of the holy God. They're trusting in Jesus alone. And you know what happens? Your obedience will follow. You will want to obey because your heart has changed. And so true faith works. Hear me. We're not saved by our works, but true faith works. True faith results in obedience. 1 John 5.3 says, For the love of God is that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. It goes hand in hand. Fear God, obey his commandments. Trust him. The result is your heart is changed, and you will want to live a life of purity, integrity, and holiness. So the test for genuine faith, do you really love Jesus? Is this real fear of God, or is it just you playing religious games? What is the test? Is your heart inclined to obey? It's really just that simple. If you have a propensity, an inclination where you don't obey, then you have to ask the question, do you really fear God? Do you really trust him? Or is this just lip service and just a show on a Friday morning? Do you rationalize your sin? Do you shift blame? Do you creatively find ways to excuse your sin? Or when confronted with it, do you repent? And are you broken over your sin? And do you feel the weight of that? A disciple who loves Jesus will have a desire to obey his commandments. So when you see in verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments, it's describing a life that is just God-saturated. It's like soaked with God. It's a life where, where the glory of God is the greatest and highest value. So fearing God is a life where where there's a longing for the presence of God. And you don't want sin that will then cloud that presence. A life that fears God is a life that, that yearns, desires to grow in holiness and to change. See, God created us to worship him. That's why you have breath in your lungs. The essence of worship is what you value. And so what you have the most worth is what you worship. That's how this works. We're always worshiping, all of us, all the time. We are worshipers. We were made to worship. Something is always going to consume our thoughts. Something's always going to consume our desires and our motivations, always. Something is always fueling 
what we do and why we do it. And this is what we worship. So to fear God is to have him fill you and to define you. And by the way, this impacts every area of your life. Husbands, this impacts how you treat your wife. Wives, this impacts how you're going to treat your husband. This, this is going to directly impact your work ethic at, at, in the workplace. This is going to impact how you spend your money, how you dress, what you buy. This, this is going to impact how you spend your time. This, this, this impacts every area of your life where Jesus is at the center. And so all of our decisions are, does this glorify God? Does this bring me closer to Jesus? Is this in line with what he's revealed in his word? But let's just be real with ourselves on this Friday morning. Life under the sun is hard. It's filled with pain and disappointments and frustrations. But when we fear God, we're recognizing something. We recognize that we can't fix ourselves. We recognize that we can't heal ourselves and that we can't change ourselves and that we can't find meaning for ourselves and we have no hope left to ourselves. So fearing God is recognizing that, yes, you were broken, but that you were dependent on God. And so you entrust your soul to him. So here's here's a few questions for you to just mull over and think about this week as we think about fearing God, a life of worship before him. What do you obsess over? I mean that. What do you find yourself really thinking about and and worrying about? What What do you obsess over? What do you most hope is in your future that if you don't get it, you're not sure how you're going to face life. When you have this frustration or disappointment, where, where do you run to for comfort, for refuge? May it be Jesus. May we run to the refuge of Jesus, and may he be what we're preoccupied with and constantly in conversation with him. May he be our hope and our disappointments, may we drive closer to him. Because that's what it's for. God sovereignly allows us to have frustration so that it can draw us closer to him. And so on this Friday morning, no, I don't know how painful life is for you. Maybe you're doing great. Maybe you're not. But I can tell you that God is using all of your circumstances to draw you closer to himself. And if today you really are struggling, You have to know this from God's word, that God is still God. That God is still good. And that God is still on his throne. That God still loves you. That God will not fail you. That God will not forsake you. That God is still near. And you're as nearest to the brokenhearted. And that God still has a good purpose for your life. And you, and you can hold on to this truth because it's in God's word. We fear him. We live a life of worship for his glory before him. That's our purpose. Question number two. Well, how do we do that? Like practically, how do we get there? 
like, okay, I want to be there. I want to live like that. How do I achieve that? What are the steps that I have to take to live a life like that? How do we live God's purpose for us? How do we live it out? Number one, you follow God's word. If you want to live God's purpose, number one, you follow his word. Verses 9 and 10 describe the spirit who inspired King Solomon, who he's called the preacher in this text as well. It says that he taught people, it says, words of truth. And it says, with great care and with delight, he was teaching people God's word. And then verse 11 says that God's word is like goads. You're like, what's a goad? Well, a goad is like a long staff that a shepherd would use. It had, had a sharp nail that was sticking out of it. It was pokey. And so whenever a sheep was kind of wandering off, maybe going towards a ravine, it might fall and, and, and kill himself, or maybe wandering away from the flock where he'd be alone, away from the protection, and a wolf might eat him up. So whenever a shepherd would see a sheep kind of doing the wrong thing, getting off the path, he would use his staff with the, with the nail, the goad, to bring the sheep back into the, the flock. Now, do you think that felt good to the sheep? No. It was uncomfortable and painful to have the goad prick him and, and, and to bring him back into the fold. But that's what God's word is described as. It pricks us. It pokes us. It stings us. Sometimes it hurts. It's painful. But it's for our own good. We need that. Because otherwise, we're going to walk off into destruction. See, God's word exposes our sin. It shows us our foolishness. And it shows us errors that need to change for our own good, for our relationships, for God's glory. God's word shows us our idols in our hearts that we need to give up. Idols that if we don't give up are going to destroy us. So out of love, God through his word and people who speak his word uses this goad to bring us back. Even if it's uncomfortable, we have to submit to that and know that it's for our own good. But it also says that God's word keeps us safe and secure. It says like nails Firmly fixed. So God keeps you fixed and secure so that you're not being blown away by the storms of life. And so a healthy, growing disciple of Jesus is someone who reads the word. Someone who treasures the word. And someone who prays the word and is hungry for the word. Someone who obeys the word and is transformed by the word that is living and active. And so if you want to live out the purpose God has for you, it begins with you follow God's word. But number two, you follow God in community. You can't do it alone. Verse 9 says that the word was given to the people. And then verse 11 says that there's one shepherd. So we're his flock. Again, these are plural terms. So we receive his word and we follow him together, the people of God. So you cannot Live God's purpose for you alone. You can't do it. You have to do it with other people, side by side, hearts knit together for his glory. But let's just be honest. That is hard and sometimes painful. Can you get an amen? 
hey, it's just us, right? Let's just, let's just be honest. Sometimes it's really hard to be close to other people. And if you get close to other people, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to get hurt. You'll be disappointed. You'll be betrayed. You'll be let down. You're going to get dirty because we're all messy. We're all human. If you're jogging with a buddy on our mountains, there's no mountains here, but theoretically, and, and your friend trips and falls down a ravine and you see him have this horrible tumble and, and you see him down the ravine with a broken and bloody body and so you go down to help him. Well, as you climb down that ravine, you're going to risk injury for yourself. And even if you get down there without hurting yourself, when you help your friend up and back up the ravine, you're going to get dirty and you're going to get bloody. But you can leave him down there alone and you'll stay clean. But if you go reach out to the broken and the hurting, you're going to get dirty. There's no way around it. Let's just be honest. Faith family. Having close friends is risky. You let them in. You share your struggles. They see your junk. Like everyone seems normal until you get to know them. And you realize, oh man, they're messed up. But so are you. So are you. You cannot follow God in community and expect to stay clean. But here's what you can experience. When you get your hands dirty and get in someone's life and you love them, you will change. Your heart will change. And you'll grow in ways that you would not have grown if you had stayed clean. God in his infinite wisdom has has created his people where we share our burdens and we bring our brokenness and God heals us and changes us. And so go ahead and keep people at arm's length and don't join a home group and don't join this habitship group and don't be held accountable and don't be transparent. Don't get dirty, but I can tell you, you won't experience that transformation that God has for you. It's risky, but it's worth the risk and it's worth the pay. Jesus humbled himself. He didn't have to come down. He didn't have to. You see, we live in a world that says, you made your bed, now you lay in it. I told you. I told you this was going to happen. Now you figure it out. You made a mess of yourself. Now you clean yourself up. I'm not going to get involved. I told you. See, this is what our world says, but that's not what Jesus did. He came for us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God came near. He came for us to bind our wounds, and he got dirty. Man, he cut dirty with our filth. Look, I know you might not believe this, but I'm flawed. <laughs> I mean, I say that tongue-in-cheek because we all know this. 
that pastors are as flawed as anyone else is, that I am a sinner who is desperate for the mercy of God as much as you are. I'm, it's not even funny how flawed I am. And you probably know the flaws. You can list them, not here, later if you want to. I know what it feels like to hurt people that I love deeply. I know what it feels like to disappoint people, to have to confess my sin and beg for forgiveness, and then to receive love and mercy. I know what that feels like. When the people of God love one another and they forgive one another and are willing to get their hands dirty and fight against what's natural, which is to run, but instead we fight for purity and we fight for unity and restoration, even in the pain, the glory of God is displayed. That is just glorious and it tells the world that the people who have Jesus are different. Not perfect, but different. And they display his infinite perfections in how they love and forgive and seek to help one another. The gospel says you love the unlovable, you show mercy, you help those that are broken, you don't give up on people because God does not give up on us, and the gospel of Jesus proves it. The cross proves it. We have no glory of our own, but God has all the glory, belongs to him, but we get the privilege of reflecting his glory, and one big way is when we do it in community. No one can follow Jesus alone, and no one experiences transformation alone. So, God's purpose for us is that we fear him, we worship him. How do we do it? You follow his word. You follow him in community. Number three, how do you do it? You follow God himself. You see, verse 11 says that God's word comes by, it says, by one shepherd. Jesus himself is the good shepherd that we read about earlier from John 10. The shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. The sheep who hear his voice, who know him, who follow him. Living your purpose is not academic knowledge or just religiosity. You know, uh, I'll talk to people who don't know Jesus but have other religions. And, and they'll say, oh, you're a Christian, so you follow the teachings of Jesus. I say, well, not exactly. I follow Jesus. His teachings lead me to him. So I don't just study a list of religious beliefs. It's not just doctrine for the sake of information. No, we study doctrine. We study the word, Jesus' teachings, because it leads us to know him. It's all about him. So you follow God himself. And so your purpose is Jesus, to know him, to enjoy him, and to make him known to those who have not yet experienced that joy. And verse 12 makes it very clear. Verse 12 says that studying the word and learning, but apart from enjoying the shepherd, is weariness to your soul. That's not hope. That's not healing. It's not joy. Empty religion takes you nowhere. It's all about a person knowing Jesus. 
So our purpose is not religion. It's a relationship. Experiencing his presence through reading his word, praying, listening to music that stirs your soul to worship, journaling, just writing down your thoughts and your prayers, your hopes, your dreams, just connecting with God, walking with him, talking with him, singing to him all day long. We can do this experiencing his presence. Now, God has a unique purpose. Now, your overall purpose is to fear him, to, to worship him. But, but within that, God has unique things, unique plans and purposes for your life. And he wants to reveal that to you. He, he wants you to hear his voice. But if you're not pursuing him, you're not going to hear his voice. You're, you're, not, you're not going to be led by his spirit. May we be a people that hear the voice of Jesus and follow him. So as we wrap up, question three. So what is the result of living God's purpose? So we've seen what the purpose is and, and what we must do to live this purpose. But what does it look like when we're living this way? What is the result? Well, one is joy in life. You have joy in life. We've seen this throughout Ecclesiastes. We saw this last week, chapter 11, verse 8. It says, rejoice in your many years. God wants you to rejoice, to have joy in your life. But God also knows that he is the source of joy. So you won't have joy apart from him. You can't. It won't satisfy. So don't raise your hands. Uh, I, I don't really want to say a show of hands for this. But I'm sure some of you are so glad that today we finished the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm sure you're thinking, man, I'm so glad that we're done. And we start our Christmas series next week. It's just going to be so refreshing. This has just been a depressing book. Now, I was talking to my discipleship group this week, and one of my brothers who I love dearly, but he was honest, and he says, man, this is a depressing book. He wasn't negative. He wasn't complaining. He's like, look, our home group's loved it. It's been great conversation. It's been good. But it's just, it's just so dark and so depressing. And so I'm talking about having joy in a book that's depressing. Well, let me just explain something to you. This book is depressing. It is. I'm not denying it. It's, it's dark. So I'm not pretending otherwise. I'm aware, okay? I, I know it's a dark book. But that's by God's design. See, God designed Ecclesiastes to be somewhat depressing in order to show you what life is like without him. And it is depressing. Life without God at the center is empty. It is meaningless. And so he's trying to drive the point home. Life is meaningless without Jesus. And so this depression that you see here is meant to drive us to dependence. That's what this is. It's like, just see what life is like without me. And yes, be depressed about it. But don't stay there. Come to me. Come depend on me. Come have joy in life. Come have fullness and abundance like you were designed to experience. Holiness leads to happiness. Living a life of purity, integrity, and wisdom leads to far more joy than living a life of darkness and foolishness and sinful patterns. Living with Jesus and living for Jesus leads to joy in life, the way he designed. But lastly, 
read the last verse as we wrap up. Verse 14, last verse of the book. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So there's this promise of judgment where God will come and he will right every wrong. So if you've been abused, if you've been neglected or really hurt by someone, you can know that God knows, he cares, and he's a judge, and he's going to make every wrong right. He will. So when you're truly focused on Jesus, he fills you with peace and with confidence and ultimately with his joy in life. But lastly, so what is the result? It's joy in life, but also peace in death. And so living out your purpose will give you joy in life, but also peace in death. This verse 14 that describes judgment applies to you and me as well, because we've also sinned and deserved God's judgment. But remember, this one shepherd from verse 11, this good shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. And so we will not face judgment because Jesus already faced it for us. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you do not, then you will face judgment. But those of us who know God don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear judgment. We can have peace even in death, joy in life, but also peace in death. You see, Jesus stood under the sun with us. He suffered more than anyone else ever has or ever will. He experienced the full wrath of God. He died in your place, offers you forgiveness. John 16, 33, he sounds a lot like Solomon in this book. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. So yeah, that's, that's Ecclesiastes. You will have tribulation. But Jesus can say something that Solomon could not say. He declares, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have an overcomer. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. And God has an eternal purpose for your life, and he's using your pain and disappointment to bring you closer to himself and to experience his presence in a new, fresh, profound way. Will you draw near and see whatever life situation you have, see that as coming from God's good hand even if you don't like it. Say, God, I trust you that this was what's best for me and for your glory. And trust that he will heal us and change us and make us into the brilliant mirror that displays his glory. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And you are our God and we are your people bought by the blood of your lamb, and we know that we are so undeserving, but we praise you that you made a way through our shepherd who laid his life down for us. And we want to fear you and obey your commandments, for that is our purpose, live a life of worship before you. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would not only be hearers, but that we would be doers, and that we would contemplate these truths and allow your spirit to transform us further to reflect your character. Thank you for loving us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.